I know that when you looked at the schedule, you were expecting Dan Winkler. I get that. It just seems like that I end up following Dan Winkler just about everywhere. He preached at Creve Hall before I preached there. And then I can just tell you one time after another that Dan has had to cancel something and that I've had to take his place. I'm, I, I told the class yesterday this, but I'm going to tell you today. Several years ago, I was sitting in my office on a Thursday morning when Tim Lewis called me from Oklahoma City and said, I need you here tomorrow night to do our opening keynote address for the Affirming of Faith seminar, and here's your topic. I said, what? Tomorrow night? He said, yes, Dan just called me and realized that he had a conflict. And he can't be there. I said, well, okay. So I quickly bought a ticket. I got up there, rented a car, got in an hour early. I'm walking around in the auditorium trying to figure out what I'm supposed to do. And a couple that looked really concerned came up to me and they said, excuse me, but we're looking for Dan Winkler. And I said, well, I'm sorry. Dan had a conflict and he's not going to be able to be here tonight. They said, oh, no, we have driven 125 miles just to hear Dan Winkler. What yo-yo did they get to take his place? And I said, me? <laughs> you know, what do you say? To their credit, they stayed. I will just tell you that that was a good thing. But I'm the yo-yo that's following Dan Winkler. If you're looking, Dan will sometimes show up here. I want to say before I get any further that I am so thankful for what you're doing right here at the Lehman Avenue congregation. This equipped conference has been amazing. Don't you agree? Amen. It's been amazing. And for all the people who had a part in the organizing of it, and then the people who made sure that everything had to be done. And when you get all those last minute snafus that come with any group of, of things that happen like this, it's been handled so well. I'm just telling you, it's amazing what you've done. And I want to thank you for doing it. I was assigned the topic, I want to be a worker for the Lord. And you have all kinds of reasons for wanting to be a worker for the Lord. You can even go back to the Old Testament. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies, who fills your mouth with all good things so that your youth is renewed like an eagle. That's verses 2 through 5 of Psalm 103. We have all sorts of reasons why we want to be a worker for the Lord. But when I was reading James, where we're looking through this, there's, it struck me there's a different reason for me. And I want you to go with me to James chapter 4 and look at verses 6 through 8. We'll start in the middle of verse 6. We'll stop in the middle of verse 8. And I want you to listen to what he says because it really says something ominous. Listen, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. What I want you to think about for a moment is that concept, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I want to be a worker for the Lord because I want to fight him. I want to be a worker for the Lord because I want to stop him from doing the damage that I see him doing in America and all over the world right now. And if you don't think that it's something ominous, if you don't think that it's something astounding that God has called us to do, I want to take your attention to 1 John chapter 5. Turn there, 1 John chapter 5, and begin at verse 18. We're going to go down through verse 21. I remember when I was a kid, we used to sing, he has the whole world in his hands. 
but I'm not sure that's biblical. I want you to listen to what this passage says about who has the world in his hands. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God. Now listen, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There are kingdoms in conflict today, and you're on one side or the other of that conflict. No, it is a conflict of kingdoms. You remember in Matthew chapter 12, verse 26, when Jesus said, if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself and his kingdom cannot stand. Satan has a kingdom. You skip down two more verses to verse 28. And Jesus says, if it's by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There is a kingdom of Satan and there is a kingdom of God and those kingdoms are at war and you're in the army. One army or the other, you're in the army. The kingdom of Satan or the kingdom of God, one way or the other. But what I want you to think about for just a moment is that part in verse 19 of 1 John chapter 5 where he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What an amazing role and status the scripture gives to Satan when it says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He holds the whole world in his hands. Now, I want to know, is that your view of the world? Because if that's your view of the world, that Satan has the whole world in his power, Satan holds the world in his hands, I want to tell you that that is in radical contrast to the way the people all around you view the world. The way America views the world, the way many of your Christian brethren view the world is not like this. They see it differently. But if you're not aware of this, if you're not stunned by this, then you're vulnerable to this. Satan has the whole world in his power. What does that mean? Well, it means a number of things. Listen to Galatians chapter 1 verse 4. It says that Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. Why is this present age evil? Because it lies in the power of the evil one. This age in which we live is an evil age. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16. Redeem the time for the days are evil. The days are evil and the age is evil because this age is under the power of the evil one. In fact, Paul calls him in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, the God of this age. He has blinded the minds of the unbeliever. He's the God of this age because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and this is an evil age. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the powers of the air, of the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. The demonic, invisible powers that are around us are all under the control of Satan. He is the prince of this age. He is the god of this world, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And he works best, it says, in the sons of disobedience. 
The prince of this age works best in people who have already decided not to serve God. Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 31. Judgment is of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. Or chapter 14, verses 30 and 31. Jesus on that beautiful, by the way, if you get a chance, I think one of the most beautiful scenes in all the gospel accounts is in John chapter 14, and you just need to spend a lot of time there. But here's one of the things that happened on that night. Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he said, I will not talk much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as my Father commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. I wish I had time to tell you that that wasn't about, the crucifixion of Jesus wasn't about the evil of Satan, and it's not about the power of sin. Crucifixion of Jesus is about the obedience of the Lord and his love of the Father. And that's why he went to the cross, and that's what it's about. But in the process of that, he talks about Satan, and he says he's the ruler of this world. And then in chapter 16, verse 11 of John, he says, The ruler of this world is judged. Now, I want you to stop for just a moment and catch your breath. Is that the way you see the world? I'm serious, because that's the way the Bible sees the world. But is that the way you really see the world? Do you see that the ruler of this world, who has the whole world in his power, this one is the one who is involved in everything that surrounds you. He's involved in business and industry and commerce and politics and education and the arts and recreation and entertainment. Satan is the god of this age. He's involved in every bit of this. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and that's what we're up against. Unless I realize what I'm up against, I don't know how much I'm needed when I want to say, I want to be a worker for the Lord. I want to fight something that's powerful. I want to fight something that's spiritual, that's bigger than me, by the power of a God that's bigger than him. I want to fight. I want to be a worker for the Lord. Listen to what happened, and please don't take this as an oversimplification. I see people say, yeah, but when Jesus died and rose again, then all of that kind of went away. No, remember when the, these books were written that we're talking about after the death and resurrection of Jesus? And I know what he says. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power over death, that is, the devil. Or Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, that God has disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame, triumphing over them in Christ. I get that. I know what that's talking about. But the fact is true. While these are gloriously true statements, I want to tell you that the battle, the decisive battle has been won. But the war is still going on. That war is still going on between Satan and with God and with you and with me. He's in that process. So what I want to do with you for just a few moments is take just a little bit of time and talk in one specific area that I think is really, really important. And that's the area of evangelism. Satan does seven things to stop evangelism. We talked about ten things you can do. I want to talk about seven things that Satan is doing to stop what you can do. Can I just tell you that the most loving 
an important thing you can do in your life is to lead somebody to Jesus. Whatever role you play, it's one of the most important things you're ever going to do. We have in America today watered down what we're supposed to be doing, and even in the church we often forget, and we become involved in the culture wars. What I mean by that is that we decide that we have to oppose abortion, that we have to oppose uh, the other things that are going on uh, in the world, and if we can get those done, then we will have done our job. I want you to imagine that you engage in the culture wars in your lifetime, that through your efforts you win. I want you to imagine for just a moment that you have won the culture war. I want you to think about the fact that you have radically changed the behavior of the world. And now the world that you're living in is a world without racism, a world without sexism, a world without classism, a world without ageism, that that's gone. I want you to imagine a world where children are no longer sacrificed on the altar of convenience in any society. I want you to imagine a world where politicians care more about the welfare of those that they've been entrusted with than they do about getting reelected. I want you to imagine a world where human rights and dignity are upheld in every place. I want you to imagine a world where stealing and lying and unkindness no longer happen. I want you to imagine a world where natural resources are used in such a way that we do not rape the environment that we're in. I want you to imagine a world where people keep their promises and where marriages never fail. If by your efforts you create that kind of world, you will have expended your life in a secondary effort because that world that we've just talked about will have exactly the same problem as this world that you're experiencing right now. They're lost without Jesus. Without the gospel of Jesus Christ, that world is as lost as this world. It's important that we feed and clothe and house and educate and care for the people of our world. And that's a good thing to do. But to feed and clothe and house and educate the people of our world without presenting them the thing that will save their immortal soul is less than loving. It's cruel. I'm telling you, what I see us sometimes do it's as though someone is dying from an infection and we're giving them aspirin to relieve the pain when we could be giving them antibiotic to cure the disease. We are trying to alleviate the pain of our world when we have the cure for the disease of our world in Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important than what we do in the spreading of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So how does Satan work against it? Write these down. I, I want you to write these down. I don't have any PowerPoint. I, I really love people who use them. Just my mind does this and this and this. And so PowerPoint just goes that direction. And, and I have more problems with this than I know what to tell you with. So let me just give you seven things that Satan does to stop the gospel. Number one, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. That's what it says. If our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Even before you arrive on the scene, Satan is doing everything he can to blind people so that they won't see the gospel when the gospel shows up. 
We need God's power and we need God's help and we need God's providence who, by the way, has been working on every person as well from the moment they took their first breath. There's nobody that you will meet that God hasn't already been working on. But so has Satan and his job is to try to blind their minds. Look at Matthew chapter 13 verses verses 3 and 4 and then verse 19. Listen to what he says in this parable of the soils. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And then down in verse 19, he describes what he meant by that. He says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart, that what is, that's what is sown along the path. He pictured Satan like a flock of birds that when the word of God actually gets in the heart of somebody, he quickly takes it out. He does everything he can to snatch it out of there as fast as possible before they have the opportunity to think about it very long. And he might use radio and he might use TV or social media or crying babies or squabbling spouses or broken cars or troubles at work or gambling or pornography or drugs or you name it. He'll do whatever he can do to keep you from thinking about the gospel of Christ. That's what he does. Here's the third thing that Satan does. He does deceptive signs and wonders. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 24, false Christ and false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders so as to lead astray if possible even the elect. Paul warned about that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, when he said the coming of the lawless one by the activity of Satan will be with all power and with signs and wonders of falsehood and with wicked deception for those who perish. Satan is an imitator. Just like those men who served Pharaoh way back in the days of the Exodus who made their rods into snakes the same way it looked like that the rod became a snake when Moses threw it down. They imitated what God had done. And today there are people who claim to be able to do signs and wonders. And what ultimately happens is not that they bring people to the Lord, they bring them further from the Lord. In the fourth place... Satan uses people to hinder other people from believing. Do you remember in Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas have been sent out by the leaders of the church at Antioch, and they come to the island of Cyprus, and they meet Sergius Paulus, a Roman proconsul, and he's interested in hearing about the gospel of Christ. But there is a magician there by the name of Elymas, and he is doing everything he can to keep them from having any kind of credibility with Sergius Paulus. Now, Paul up to this point has been fairly quiet. But he says something here that's amazing in chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. Listen to this. I've never called anybody this, but I've wanted to. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you'll be blind and unable to see for some time. Listen. He says, you are a son of the devil. When people are being used by Satan to keep other people from listening, they are being used by Satan, and they're called here the son of the devil. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 38, Jesus in the parable of the tares talks about the sons of the devil, the sons of the evil one, who are there to make trouble and sow tares in the midst of it. Satan often uses people to hinder other people from coming to Christ. And they're under the influence of Satan, whether they know it or not. Here's the fifth thing. Satan hinders mission efforts in general. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 17 and 18, Paul tells the church that he's wanted to come and he's tried to come to them again and again, but he says, but Satan hindered us. Satan hinders mission efforts in general. He does his best to thwart missionary plans. Here's number six. Satan throws some Christians in prison, persecutes them, maybe even kills them. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 to the church in Smyrna, he told them, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for ten days, and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Satan persecutes Christians any way he can. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. He said it's happening everywhere. Satan is doing his best to devour Christians. That's what he's about. That's what he's doing. Well, I'm going to stop at 6, okay? So just know what we're up against. We're at war. We're at war with one who blinds and snatches the word and deceives with signs and wonders, who uses people to hinder faith, who messes up missionary plans, who persecutes Christians, throws them in prison, and sometimes, in fact, kills them. I don't know if you know this, but more people were martyred for their faith in Christ in the 20th century than in the first. And in the 21st century, the martyrdoms are immense that are happening among people simply because they believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God and they're not afraid to say it. Well, before I leave you with the wrong idea entirely, can I just take a few moments and think about the implications of one scripture? I want you to turn with me to 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are of God and have overcome them. And it's the second half that matters to me the most right now. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. We've talked about the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but here's the good news. The one that lives in you, the one who is in you, is greater than he who is in the world. There's nobody like our king. There is nobody like our Jesus. No means of measure can define his infinite love. No far-seeing telescope can ever get to the limit of his amazing mercy. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. There's nobody like our God. He's God's son. He's the center's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in psychology. He is the fundamental doctrine of all true theology. Do you know him? He supplies strength to the weak. He's available to the tempted and the tried. 
He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and he sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleanses the lepers. He forgives the sinners. He delivers the captives. He discharges the debtors. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent. He serves the unfortunate. And he beautifies the meek. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the key of knowledge. He's the doorway to deliverance. He's the pathway to peace. He's the roadway to righteousness. He's the highway to holiness. He's the gateway to glory. He is the head of the heroes, the captain of the conquerors, the governor of governors, the leader of the legislators, the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and there's nobody like him in all the world. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. His yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him to you. But he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's irresistible. He's invincible. You can't get him off your hands and you can't get him out of your mind. You can't outlive him and you can't live without him. The Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Herod couldn't kill him. Pilate couldn't find any fault with him. Death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him. He's king and he's in you. His is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever and ever. And when you get through with all those forevers, he's still king of kings and lord of lords. And he's our king. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And I want to change that for just a moment. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. I want you to say it with me. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. That was terrible. Do it again. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen. Thank you.